Have you ever been in a desperate situation? If so, I wonder how you would describe yourself in this state of desperation. How similar or different are you to yourself when you are not desperate? Do you think the same way? Do you act the same way? Most likely, I'm guessing the answer is no, because as the saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. That's a a saying that most people trace back to the great physician Hippocrates, who was born in the 5th century B.C., and still to this day is considered the father father of medicine. Uh, Many also attribute to him what's called the Hippocritic Oath, that many medical professionals still to this day take as a form of ethics as a doctor. Well, his version of the quote is actually something more like, as to extreme diseases, extreme methods of cure are suitable. And I would say that extreme measures of cure are required. Because the assumption is that in a desperate situation, the normal methods of resolving things don't work out. Desperate situations not only force us to think outside of the box, but they also have a way of revealing our true selves. It's rare that someone becomes entirely different, although they may change because of a desperate situation. But most of the time, desperate situations show us what we're really made of. These are times when push comes to shove, and we have to make important decisions about who we are and what we believe. Well, in our text this morning, we're going to be studying two individuals who are both in desperate situations. And it may not seem this way at first, but they both, in a very real sense, go to drastic measures for help. They seek out Jesus. And in doing so, they provide an example of what saving faith looks like. And their lives are changed forever as a result. As Christians, we unapologetically believe and preach that we are in need of saving and that only Jesus can save us if we turn from our sins and believe in him. But what kind of faith is saving faith? Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verse 21 through 43. And you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark, chapter 5, verse 21. If you're using the Bibles provided, you'll find our passage on page 840. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can read at home, feel free to take one of the black Bibles that we provide as our gift for, to you. We would, we would be happy for you to have your own personal copy that you can read at home. We believe that God has spoken to us in His Word, that it is without error in everything it intends to communicate, and that it is sufficient for all life and godliness for us. Because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is also authoritative for our lives. Well, if you've been following along in our study of the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember that we're in the middle of a cluster of miracles performed by Jesus. Mark sometimes writes this way, where he'll clump together a series of parables, for example, and then a series of miracles. And so the last few sermons in Mark, we've covered Jesus and his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee, during which, or through which, they encounter a hurricane-like storm, and Jesus calms the storm by speaking to it. 
And then the disciples, when the storm is stilled, they fear even greater than they did for their lives in the middle of the storm because they realize Jesus exercises divine control over even the storm. Then they land on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee only to be met by a wild man screaming, naked, bloody, from stones and possessed by demons. And just like the raging storm, Jesus calms the raging man and casts the demons out. That time, the nearby herdsmen are the ones who fear. And when they fear, they beg Jesus to leave. And so he goes back across the Sea of Galilee to the western side. And that's where our story picks up today. In our passage this morning, Mark records not just one miracle, but two, completing the whole section of miracles. And as I've said in the previous sermons, through these miracles, Jesus reveals his divinity by exercising authority over areas beyond or outside of human control. Jesus is revealing his divinity by exercising authority over areas beyond human control. So think about the storm. He exercises control over nature. And then over the demons, more like an army of demons. And then in our story today, he's going to show he has power over even illness and death. In addition to the divinity of Jesus, there's been a constant theme of fear and belief throughout these miracles. And those themes become even more clear in this final section. Let's read our passage together now. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus And came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. 
and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. Two desperate figures are given mercy in this story because of their faith. The main idea of this passage is this, that sin and suffering is uncontrollable and universal. But the power of Christ alone undoes it. Sin and suffering is uncontrollable and universal. But the power of Christ alone undoes it. Since these two miracles are woven together into one unit, I think it's best to consider them both in order to gain understanding about what's going on. And the first thing I want you to see from this passage is the first part of that main idea that sin and suffering is uncontrollable. Jesus and his disciples are making their way back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, a Jewish area. And apparently, this time they have no problem getting across the sea. And as soon as they land, they're met by a great crowd. If you'll remember in chapter 4, Jesus was teaching them parables from the boat as a great crowd lined the shore. And they go straight from teaching in the boat across. And it's almost like he comes back and the crowd is just still there. Well, whether they were just waiting for him, looking, or they quickly came to him, searching for him, Jesus is met by an enormous crowd. And from this crowd, one man is singled out, a man named Jairus, who is called the ruler of the synagogue, comes up to Jesus. Now, men who are in this position as rulers of a synagogue are usually Pharisees, but they don't have to be. They can be lay people. Uh, but they're usually in charge of scheduling the preachers and the, the, the song leaders and scripture readers of the synagogue, as well as just maintaining the facility. Rulers of the synagogue are usually men of high status. They're well-known in the community, well-respected, devout religiously, and probably somewhat wealthy. And I wonder what would have been going on in the disciples' head, in the disciples' heads as they saw Jairus coming to them. The last time they landed on a shore, a wild man came at them. This time, you know, so far, the only reputation or things that we've heard about the Pharisees is that they really don't like Jesus. In fact, they even at one point plot to kill him. So maybe this man is coming to try to assassinate Jesus. But what happens? He falls down at the feet of Jesus and implored him earnestly. This is a man who we would say has his life together. And yet, he falls at the feet of Jesus. I don't know what this would have looked like to the crowd. 
Maybe he was bowing down. Maybe he was clinging to Jesus' feet. Maybe he was weeping. I also wonder what kind of scene this caused. Were people taken back by it? What would cause a well-established man like Jairus to fall at the feet of a popular carpenter? Well, I think the same thing that would cause anyone in this room to be desperate. A beloved family member is at the point of death. And what he means is that she is basically one step away from passing. She is knocking at death's door. Mark later tells us she's only 12 years old. Uh, So Jairus comes before Jesus to beg him to come with him because he knows that Jesus can make her well. He says in verse 23, Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. If you've ever experienced the death of a family member or a close friend, then you know that it's beyond our control. You've felt that. Something feels like it's been taken from you. We like to think that we can prevent these things or we convince ourselves that they're so rare that they probably just won't happen to us. But those are not new feelings. Jairus probably felt that way. And if his little girl's at the point of death, it means that she's been declining. And it probably means he's tried everything else at this point. He wouldn't have been the kind of person that lacked resources, good doctors and medicine and diet to help. But none of these things can stop death when it comes. I titled the point Sin and Suffering because it's good for us to remind ourselves that all suffering and death is a result, ultimately, of sin. It may not be a specific sin that leads to uh, either the bleeding woman's condition or Jairus' daughter, but all of sin and suffering is downstream from the fall. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, creation was put under a curse. And from that curse comes all forms of brokenness and pain and suffering and abnormalities, and even death. So whether or not we know the causes, we can learn that sin and suffering is beyond our control. We have no more control over sin and suffering than we do over nature and the demonic realm. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Wait a minute. As Christians, can't we fight sin? Can't we grow in godliness by the Holy Spirit's work in us? And to that question, I say yes, amen, absolutely. But we live in an already not yet world. Meaning for us who have put our trust in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our eternity is secured. But we are called to be in the world and not of it. Meaning we still live in a broken world. Our bodies are still fallible as are our minds. And we still will feel the effects of a broken world. It's not something we can control. Job, in the Old Testament, he's described as a man who is blameless and upright, who feared God. And in one single day, he loses all of his children and his property. And after which, he falls down and worships. And he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Notice that there's no indication as to the cause of Jairus' daughter in this passing state. Nor is there any indication as to what caused the woman's condition, who will come later in the story. And I think that's purposefully hidden for us. Because we won't always know the causes, the direct causes at least, of sin and suffering in the world. But we can remember that it is a result of the fall. We can also remember that Jesus knows about sin and suffering and has compassion. Look at his response to Jairus in verse 24. It says, and he went with him. His compassion for people shines here as he agrees to go with Jairus. And how, how happy Jairus must have been at that point to have finally reached Jesus, his last hope, only to be then bringing him back home. They're making their way through the crowd. And the crowd, uh, that word thronged just means uh, thrashed or crushed around them. We already know this from a previous chapter where Jesus has the disciples prepare a boat so that he's not crushed from the crowd. So Jesus is, this, this crowd is not small. Uh, it is not quiet. <laughs> but as they're making their way through, a woman touches Jesus' garment. Just like Jairus, this woman is in a desperate situation of her own. She's described as having a discharge of blood for over 12 years. She has a condition that simply will not heal. Not only that, but verse 26 says that she had seen many physicians and no one could help her in all the 12 years. I wonder how many doctors she had gone to see. But her condition only worsened. We don't know exactly what what her condition was. Some think it's some form of endometriosis or some kind of ongoing menstrual bleeding. That's what's likely. Um, I have no experience in the medical field, but in the short amount of research I did, I couldn't find any modern-day examples of this kind of condition lasting as long as 12 years. But lest you think it's manageable, the text says that she spent all that she had trying to treat it. So let me just ask you, how uncomfortable would you have to be to spend all that you have in the hope of resolving a pain? I mean, there may be times in our lives where we think, I would give anything to have this, or I would do anything to remove this. But it's another thing entirely to actually go through with spending all you have. And in all of that effort, after striving for so long, it's done in vain. She only grew worse. Here are two desperate individuals who have exhausted their resources and have come to Jesus as their last hope because they can't control the situation that they found themselves in. Verse 27 says that the woman heard reports about Jesus, which is an amazing detail. We know Jesus' popularity had exploded in that region. Um, We don't even know how, but somehow Jesus has gone viral. How do you go viral in the ancient world? Uh, There's no TikTok or YouTube or Internet or newspaper. But here she was, wherever she had come from, and whatever she heard, and whatever reports that she heard, they gave her the confidence to believe that Jesus could heal her. Perhaps she heard about 
how he healed or cleansed a leper in chapter 1. Maybe she heard about the time he healed the man's withered hand in 3, 5. Both conditions thought to be irreversible. Both of them, the bleeding woman and Jairus, believed that the touch of Jesus would make them well. And when we look at their similarities, we see that sin and suffering is beyond our control. And because we as Christians know this to be true, we should be some of the most compassionate people in the world. We should not be surprised by sin and suffering of various kinds, and we should be quick to empathize with people who are going through them, to seek understanding and to show love and care for them. Pray that we would be a church that emulates this well. Well, the second thing I want you to see in this passage is that sin and suffering is universal. And we can learn that by looking at some of the differences between Jairus and the bleeding woman. Perhaps you notice that the bleeding woman is not even named. It makes it harder to preach the sermon because I have to keep saying the bleeding woman rather than her name. But she's literally a nameless person in the story. And she's from who knows where. The woman's also poor since she's spent all that she's had looking for a cure. Jairus, on the other hand, is not only named, but we have his occupation. He holds an important position in society. Being the ruler of the synagogue, he was probably well-known by common people and by members of high society. He may have been one of them himself. So we have two complete opposites here, one being anonymous, the other being well-known, one being poor, the other probably wealthy. But as best as we can tell, that didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus is not a savior for a specific kind of people. He's not an American God. He's not a middle-class white family religion. He's not only for poor people who have nothing else. He's not for those with the best resources and education who can learn the original languages. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 3. He says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as the propitiation or the substitute by his blood to be received by faith. The reason the gospel is such good news is because of both points one and points two of this sermon. Sin and suffering is out of our control and affects every one of us. We can't free ourselves from the effects of the fall. We're stained by our sin sin, and deserve the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent His Son, Jesus, not just for the gyruses of the world or any particular group of people, but for all who turn from their sin and put their trust in Him. No matter your background, who you are, where you came from, or what you've been through, Jesus shows compassion to those who are desperately reaching out to Him in faith. And if you've not reached out to Christ and trusted in Him for the forgiveness of sins. Don't wait any longer. Turn from your sin and trust Him today. Tomorrow is not promised for any one of us, but eternity is promised for those who trust in Christ. There's another layer of distance between these two figures, the woman and Jairus. If you know Jewish law, then you know that this woman 
would have been viewed as ceremonially unclean because of her condition, based on the laws of Leviticus 15. And to be ceremonially unclean was not a mere inconvenience. It was to be spiritually and physically cut off from the people of God, and therefore to be cut off from God himself. Normally, if you read Levitical law, it takes seven days for a woman to be considered clean after bleeding, But because of the woman's condition and its ongoing nature, she would have been in a state of perpetual uncleanness. Not only would she have been in physical discomfort, but she would have been banned from the synagogue. And if she was following the law, she would have needed to avoid family members and friends so that she wouldn't spread her uncleanness to them. She may have lived on her own because of this. Or if she was near family, they would need to make provisions like leaving food out for her in another room or outside. So her status within society would have been reduced to the very bottom. We have an unclean woman on the one hand who is barred from the synagogue, and then we have the man Jairus who has the keys to the synagogue. Sin and suffering doesn't discriminate, but it does come in different forms. Both in the same place, seeking Jesus for help. Jairus' situation would appear to be more pressing to us. But God's priorities and his timing is not always the same as ours. Jairus learns that the hard way. Put yourself in Jairus' shoes for just a minute. Imagine. My little girl is dying. We have to go now. She could die any minute. We don't have any time to waste. Come with me, Jesus. And as you're making your way back home, he stops and turns around. This must be something really important, you're thinking. And he says, who touched my garment? What do you mean, who touched your garment? I mean, the awkwardness of the situation is revealed by the disciples' reaction. You see the crowd pressing around you and you say, who touched your garment? Jesus, everyone is touching your garment. But Jesus perceives that healing power had left him. And I'm guessing he knew the pain and the faith of the woman already. She, trying to remain hidden, probably because she had risked so much to get to Jesus, she would have had to kind of hide herself in the crowd uh, so that other people wouldn't know that she was unclean. She risked spreading uncleanness to all the people around her. But in faith, she reaches out, touches his garment, and feels... Her body, after 12 years, 12 grueling years of pain and discomfort, is gone in an instant. How magnificent that must have felt. And then probably the hairs on the back of her neck would have shot up immediately as Jesus calls her out. That horrible feeling when you get caught doing something you shouldn't be doing. But she comes forward and confessed to Jesus. It was me. I know I'm not supposed to be here. I know I'm unclean. I'm sorry, Jesus. Maybe I should have asked. I've been suffering for 12 years. I've spent everything I had. I knew that if I just touched your garment, I'd be healed. Our text says that she told him the whole truth. And how does Jesus respond? He says, daughter. Precious one. He comforts her. 
And he encourages her. He says, your faith has made you well. Not that her faith healed her. Faith is only as good as the object it's in. Jesus healed her, but it was her faith that allowed her to receive the healing. And he says, go in peace. Go in peace. That's a spiritual blessing. Shalom. It describes a state of spiritual peace between God and man. And I think Jesus not only healed her body, but gave her spirit rest as well. In making her clean, he reconciled her to God and to his people. Sin and suffering may be all over the world, but don't make the mistake of thinking God doesn't care about it. When his people are enslaved in Egypt, he hears their cries and sends Moses. He says in Psalm 40, David, King David says, He waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined and heard his cries. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, He gathers the outcasts, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We worship a God who cares about the afflicted. So much so that he sent his own son to die for them. God draws near to those who are suffering. We have that promise in James 4, 7. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. If you're currently in a season of suffering of some kind, whether it be emotional or physical, perhaps some kind of chronic illness, that you don't have an explanation for, that doctors don't seem to be any help for. Just look at these examples of Jesus' compassion to those who are suffering. That leads me to point three. Sin and suffering is undone by the power of Christ alone. Sin and suffering is only made well by Jesus. And we see that happen first to the bleeding woman. It appears that while Jesus is stopped to help her, messengers from Jairus' house come, bringing terrible news. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? It's pointless. Quit bothering with this. It's over. Jairus' heart must have collapsed at that point. And if I, if I was in Jairus' position, I probably would have been furious with the woman and furious with Jesus. Why did you stop? This woman has had this disease for 12 years. You should have come and healed my daughter first and then come and found the woman. She would have been fine for another day. It's your fault she's gone. Mark doesn't tell us what's going on in Jairus' head, but we do that sometimes, don't we? We can't possibly see why God would allow something to happen the way it does, and so we blame him for it. We assume it's some kind of mis miscalculation. We assume we know better. But once again, Jesus shows compassion even for an imperfect faith. I think Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knew the thoughts of the Pharisees when he had forgiven the paralytic man. And I think more than likely, Jesus delayed intentionally, knowing the little girl would pass away so that he could show them his resurrecting power. That's what he does when his good friend Lazarus dies in John 11. 
If you haven't read John 11, let me just encourage you to read that passage later today. It's an amazing passage. It's one of my favorite ones, if I'm allowed to say that. When Lazarus dies, Jesus goes to the tomb, and Mary, Lazarus' brother, falls at his feet, crying, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then when they take Jesus to the tomb, the shortest verse in the Bible is right there, Jesus weeps. And when others are observing Jesus weeping over his beloved friend, Lazarus, they say to each other, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And we could say the exact same thing in this story. And the answer is actually yes. Jesus could have kept Lazarus or this little girl from dying. But we think that because God can do something, it's better that way, without realizing that perhaps God intended things to happen in a particular way or in a particular timing or order, and that his reasons are far beyond what we could think or imagine in that particular moment in time. So why didn't he? Because he wanted to show them that he was even more powerful than what they thought about him. He wanted to teach them what resurrection was. And a resurrection can only happen when someone is dead. As soon as the messengers give word to Jairus, Jesus turns from comforting the woman to then comforting Jairus. He says, do not fear, only believe. Don't worry, only believe. I would say, what do you mean don't worry? It's happened already. My worst fears have already been met. Jairus can't see any possible positive outcome. But Jairus... I think takes Jesus' words to heart. Why shouldn't Jairus fear? Because, as he's about to find out, not even death is outside the realm of control of Jesus. And so Jesus takes three of his closest disciples and they go to Jairus' house. He takes Peter, James, and John, which is an interesting detail. And, um, you know, these are actually the, the same three disciples that Jesus takes with him up on the mountain when he's transfigured before them. They're his closest disciples. And I think from that we can learn that Jesus reveals more of himself to some than to others. In the Gospel of Mark, there's an emphasis of those outside and those inside. Those who are outside, even Jesus' family is described that way, as outside the, the house, unable to get to him at one point. Those who are outside don't believe, and they don't know the will of God, but those on the inside obey Jesus and seek to understand him. And that's what happens when they get to Jairus' house. They stumble on a commotion. Uh, A typical Jewish funeral is, I think, very different than ours. Our funerals, there tends to be a hush in the room when you enter in, and maybe a close family member's sobs are heard over, over the rest. But Jewish funerals, they actually hired people who were professional mourners to create this kind of atmosphere appropriate for grief and mourning. Uh, We know from Jewish tradition that even poor families were required to have at least two flute players. So a man like Jairus probably had a large group of people whose job it was to wail and mourn, indicating probably to the people in the area what was going on, a tragedy that had happened, inviting others to join the family in their grief. 
And when Jesus comes, he says the second awkward thing of the passage in verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laugh at him because she's obviously dead. In case anyone was wondering if maybe there was a chance she was just resuscitated or in a deep sleep or something, that laughter should leave us no doubt in our minds that she's passed away. They had ways of knowing when someone was officially dead, and you don't really begin a funeral and hire professionals unless you know beyond a shadow of doubt that that had happened. Family members especially would probably be resistant to the idea as they fight denial of their loss. But Jesus almost looks foolish by telling them that she's only sleeping. Have you ever wondered why he says that? Why would he say that she's sleeping if she really isn't? Was Jesus mistaken? He wasn't mistaken. Was he planting a seed so that they would maybe believe that she really was sleeping since he instructs them not to tell anyone after he raises her from the dead? I don't think that's it either. So why would Jesus say this? First, it's not uncommon in the Bible to refer to sleep uh, or, or to refer to death as sleep. Uh, there are examples all throughout the Old Testament in Genesis and Deuteronomy and Psalms and Job. And the theological reason for this is because there will be a resurrection for all people when they die, when they are resurrected and stand before the Almighty Judge. And so sleep in these contexts refers to a state from which one would wake up from. I mentioned the death of Lazarus. And in that story, Jesus uh, actually says, he informs those around him that, G- that, jo- that Lazarus has fallen asleep and that he would go and wake him up. And they don't understand what he's saying in that story. And they say, Jesus, if Lazarus is just sleeping, then he'll recover on his own. And then he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And this little girl's dead too. But Jesus says she's sleeping because of what he's about to do. When he's done with her, this current state of hers might as well be sleep. That's the best that death can do against Jesus. And so Jesus takes the parents and the three disciples into her quarters where her body lay, stiff, cold. Who knows how long the blood had stopped flowing through her body. Her skin would have lost some of its color. And he takes her cold, dead hand into his own and says to her, Talitha kumi, the Aramaic phrase that Jesus would have spoken in, another sign of an eyewitness account, which means little girl, Such tenderness that he speaks to her in verse 41. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. What a scene this would have been. The joy of reuniting with their little girl. And the emotional roller coaster that they would have experienced at that point. From death to life. This is the power of the Lord Jesus. The last enemy, death, has lost its sting. It has no victory. You may be experiencing sin and suffering in your life. And for whatever 
reason, God in his mysterious providence may choose not to remove it. But even death won't have the last laugh. He will raise us from death in this life, which is a mere breath, into eternity, where there will be no pain, no sorrow, no brokenness. Death is but sleep for those who believe in the Lord Jesus. In the midst of the commotion, Jesus instructs them not to tell anyone what happened. And um, I don't know how you could actually accomplish this, especially since the funeral had already begun. It's just an amazing detail. And I think it just shows that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing during his ministry on earth. This was part of his compassion to people who believed him and part of him revealing his power to them. He was showing them what he would do in his own life for them. Don't you love that last line? He told them to get her something to eat. Jesus cares about our physical bodies as well. She was probably weak. Jesus continues to care for the little girl. He sees her need for sustenance even in the excitement of the moment. That's another reason we know it's not just some illusion or a spiritual resurrection, but a physical body was raised from the dead. Jesus cares for his beloved children. He, he was not just on a mission to flex his divine power, but he cared for the people he ministered to. He was gentle and kind. For all who come to Jesus, who cling to him when all other hope seems lost, in the most desperate situations... Jesus will show compassion. If you haven't felt that peace that he granted to Jairus' family and to the bleeding woman, go to him in faith, and you can experience that peace today, no matter how broken or how imperfectly you come to him. Jesus demonstrates his power over death and illness by healing these two unclean individuals purifying them and teaching his disciples in the process that while sin and suffering may be beyond our control and it may be universal, Jesus rose from the dead to prove that death has no claim on him and that to the Christian, death is nothing more than a temporary slumber. When Jesus hung on the cross in Mark 15, those who passed by called out, mocking him, They said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. They too didn't understand sin and suffering in the world. They didn't realize that he was the greatest example of suffering and injustice, but that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. They couldn't comprehend the greater miracle that was about to happen. The greater miracle that Jesus was about to perform. Can you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God who has the power to undo sin and suffering. We pray that you would protect us from the temptation to slander your good providence and to set our sights 
instead on the power and the promise of resurrection. Help us not to fear, but to believe. Give us grace to count it joy when we meet trials of various kinds, knowing that testing of our faith produces steadfastness. We pray that you would do these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.